Go. You know about Pinocchio? You're going to learn a little bit about Pinocchio tonight. Okay? So children and uh, children should have a an orange sheet of names. Now, Steve, I'm not going to get feedback by being here. I guess not. You're working it out. Can you just announce quickly the dismissal of the nursery? Oh, oh. that's all I need to say. Yeah, parents with okay. All right, parents with zero to two-year-old children. How can you be zero years old? You're not yet one. All right. In China, they do acorn one. The nut house. Oh, this is great. You're going to sit in front. You're going to sit there for an hour. I think you'd be better to use the seats, or else we're going to need a chiropractor in the house. Why don't you use the seats? You'll be more comfortable. Thank you. Does anyone else need a name sheet? No? I'll let you hold on to them if you want. And parents, you're using your blue binders, and I hope you use them. It took a long time to come up with these notes, so make use of them. Uh, page 11, and note that on page 7, there are some hints for your devotional times here. Well, I was here two years ago. doesn't seem like two years has passed. And yes, I did get back in time for my son's graduation two years ago. Thank you for praying for me. It was a far less eventful trip going back than it was coming to California. I almost could have walked and it would have been quicker. Um, I'm thankful to be back in Southern California, and I, I tried to think of a way to introduce this in which I could bring a little bit of New York to you even as I come to Southern California. And so what I did is I took a a page out of the book of David Letterman. I don't greatly admire David Letterman, but he has his uh, ten top reasons for something. So these are my ten top reasons for coming back to Southern California, other than the fact that I was invited. Here we go. Here is reason number ten for why this New Yorker is back here in Southern California. Number one. Now, you children may not get this, but some adults will. Number one is to bring advice from Staten Island to San Fernando Valley regarding seceding from Los Angeles. So, see, I do keep up with what's going on on the West Coast. It never passed in New York. Maybe it will here. Here's reason number nine for coming back to Southern California. To see Los Angeles' smog and be encouraged that I live in New York. That's... Couldn't even see Los Angeles coming in on there. You can at least see New York from the air when you come in. Number eight, to serve as a humbled representative of the New Jersey Nets to the Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah, <laughs> you bet. Now, when it comes to baseball, it's a little bit different, but I didn't mention that. Although that little boy that threw his toy down here, he'd be a good pitcher for the Yankees. 
Number seven. Now you've got to be a. Co- if you, how many of you are coffee drinkers in here? Oh, you. Yes, I see those hands. You'll appreciate this. Reason number seven for coming back to Southern California to buy several pounds of Pete's coffee to bring to New York as proof that there is something better than Starbucks. And if you haven't tasted Pete's coffee, try it. You'll know what I mean. Number six, to try to figure out once again why a mountain conference in Southern California is named after a mountain range in Virginia. (laughs) I'm still waiting for an answer on that one. Number five, reason for coming to Southern California now for the Blue Ridge Conference. To entice Bill Adzit and Kerry Adzit to move east so that they can help the youth camp of the Presbytery of Connecticut and Southern New York. Incidentally, you have an offspring now. Last time I was at your camp, literally, I was so impressed, went back to our own little presbytery uh, where Pastor uh, Raleigh Keller's son is a member and said, we need to start a camp like this. And we're starting this year with a youth camp, okay? But we survived that one, maybe we'll work to a family camp. So that's, that's number five. Number four, to once again hear the Babe Ruth of the Presbytery of Southern California, Pastor Raleigh Keller, do Casey at the bat at the conference talent night. I don't know if I'm going to hear that this year, though. I think he's at GA. Number three, because it gives me an opportunity to once again teach Daniel, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it is. And I want you, you, is that your favorite book? Good, it's really going to be your favorite book afterwards. You want to know what Pinocchio has to do with Daniel? You'll find out tonight. Number two, to renew fellowship with so many brothers and sisters in Christ after a wonderfully blessed week two years ago. And that was a great, delightful time for me. But number one reason for coming back to the conference, the family conference of the Presbytery of Southern California, this is the one that tops the list, to learn more about God's amazing creation on Dr. Larry McHarg's Nature Walk. When is that going to be? You better have one after that's my number one reason for coming back or I'm going to go home. When is it? Probably Thursday, but you're going to do one, right? We wouldn't let him go home without it. <laughs> okay, there you go. Excellent. Really is great to be back with you. I so much appreciate now knowing many of you by name, and, uh, but I'll try to remember as many names as I can, but refresh me, and I'll try to get as many of them down by the end of the week. But I had a delightful time two years ago, and I'm looking forward to that as well this year as we deal with the book of Daniel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing after I promo books. And since Carrie and Bill went to all the trouble to have such an elaborate and fulsome book table, I want to mention two books that are very fitting for tonight's message. Number one, the book by Star Mead, Training Hearts and Teaching Minds. This is the best volume for incorporating catechism into your family worship day by day that I've seen. Now, Star Mead uh, has altered the catechism at points, uh, not badly, but it's different from what we're used to. Uh, But overall, this is a very helpful volume. And you'll know why I'm pushing this tonight when you're done tonight's lesson. So if you're having a difficult time incorporating catechism and devotions, look no further. Star Mead's Training Hearts and Training Minds. I don't know what the price is, but I'm sure Carrie's giving you a good price on the books. Second, because Daniel was a teenager when he was brought into captivity. 
or think a little bit about teenagers tonight. And absolutely the best book that I've read, and we're now working on teenager number four, raising them of our six children, um, is the book by Paul David Tripp, Age of Opportunity, A Biblical Guide, and that's exactly what it is. This is not a James Dobson psychology with a few verses of Bible in it. This is a genuinely biblical guide to raising teens. And so parents, you're getting to that age and you're getting to the heavy white water of raising teens. Paul David Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity, will help you out. Excellent book. So I mentioned both of those for tonight. Okay, let's pray. got a lot of work to do and I've got to be done by Mr. Voice. I have to be done by 8.15, right? I guess so. He laughed. Didn't like to be humble. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have brought us here safely. Thank You for the beautiful mountains that we see and the grandeur and the glory of Your creation. We ask that this week we will, with all of our learning from the book of special revelation, also learn from general revelation of Your wisdom and the way You have made the world. We also pray, Lord Jesus, that You will be glorified as we study the book given to us the book of Daniel. May these things live and breathe in us that we might not just better appreciate Daniel, but better appreciate the Christ whom Daniel prefigured. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk about Daniel. Let's introduce it a bit. You can take down what you want for notes. What a book Daniel is. I mean, Daniel is a book about vivid dreams. It's a book about a famous king, Nebuchadnezzar. There was actually an opera done about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebucho. Images and writing on a wall. Can you imagine fingers with no hand and no arm writing on a wall? Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. You know what that means, right? Wait until we get to Daniel 5. What's that? One word. Wrong words. No, they were the right words. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Beasts with iron teeth and ten horns. A blast furnace in the ancient Near East. How'd you like to be thrown into a blast furnace? Like some of the men in Daniel were. Or how'd you like to spend a night in a lion's den? Daniel's got all of that. What a remarkable book the Bible is. You know, adults, that's one of the great proofs that the Bible is the Word of God. And because other books that claim to be religious books would not be so bold as to include the kinds of things that Daniel does in it. Things about images and lions, dens and beasts and so forth and so on. So we're going to have fun with the book of Daniel this week. Daniel has symbolic pictures of things that are going to come. Now Daniel was written somewhere between the year, oh, we'll say in the 6th century, the 500 pluses before the birth of Christ. That's even older than I am. 550 some odd years before the birth of Christ, Daniel wrote about things that would happen 500 years later. It would be as if we're writing tonight and we're writing of very specific empires and governments that would come up four or 500 years from now. In fact, those predictions are so specific that critics of the Bible have said this thing wasn't written 500 some odd years before the birth of Christ. They had to be written in the second century before the birth of Christ, after these things came. But that's not the case. Daniel's a prophecy of what is to come. Daniel is a book 
about the kingdom of God that would come. And because it's a prophecy, a lot of those prophecies come with sort of strange language. Seventy weeks and 1,290 days and 1,335 days. One writer said Daniel is the beginning of the apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic, the book of Revelation, is an apocalypsis, an apocalypsis, a revealing of things to come with images. And Daniel was the first of that type of book in the Bible. Another writer said very truly, Daniel is a kind of first draft of Revelation. In fact, if you're going to understand biblical prophecy at all, and particularly if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, then you really need to understand the way prophecy is given in the book of Daniel. Daniel is told, seal up the prophecy that was given, for the time is not yet. The Apostle John was told, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Daniel gives you clues to understand the book of Revelation. Daniel and its events take place roughly between 605 B.C. Now, for you children, what does B.C. mean? It's not the comic strip. B.C. is what? Before Christ. What does A.D. mean? What? No. Everybody says after death. But that's not what it means. That's, but that's a good thought. But you'll never say that again. What does A.D. mean? Yes. Amine dom, anno domine. What does anno domine mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean after death. <laughs> it means, okay, anno domine is, domine is Lord, anno is year, like annual, every year, so it's year of our Lord. Okay? So, B.C., before Christ, and anno domine, after Christ. Well, we're dealing with B.C. Now, children, you're going to remember that because I'm going to quiz you on it. Remember that? I give quizzes. Are you out of school yet? You really think you are? Not yet. Not so long as you're at this camp. You're going to get quizzes. No, you're not this week. Well, I'm going to ask you questions about B.C. and A.D., okay? Between about 605 and 530 B.C. And what had happened at this time is that God was bringing covenant judgments on Judah. Israel was the northern kingdom. It had already been wiped out by a very wicked nation, the Assyrians. southern kingdom is Judah, where Jerusalem was, and that nation is ready to be wiped out by the Babylonians, another wicked empire. Israel is to be in mourning, in self-examination, and repentance. And Daniel writes at this time that Israel is judged. Now watch how our God is concerned to minister to all types of people. Jeremiah was another prophet, who are the major prophets? Some of you young people know who the major prophets were. Major means longer books. What are the longer prophets in the Old Testament? Do you know one? No, not Samuel. He's a little bit earlier. But that's all right. That's close. It's an Old Testament book. Yes. No, that's Moses' Eve. We're getting colder and colder. Prophets. Isaiah. Isaiah. Excellent. What's another one? What's after Isaiah? Yes. Excellent. And then Jeremiah also wrote what? Lamentation. That's not, that's not one of the major prophets. We'll link it together. Who's another major prophet? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations? 
Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Okay, These are major prophets. Their books are longer. Jeremiah wrote at the same time Daniel did, and Jeremiah was writing to the people, primarily to the people who were in Judah, who were left there after the Babylonians wiped them out. Ezekiel was writing in Babylon, where Daniel was, to the captives, those Israelites that were taken captive into Babylon. Daniel's book was really addressed to what we would call the secular world. I'm convinced that's why a good part of Daniel is written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. That was the language of the people at that time. God was concerned not just that His people, the Jews, hear what He was doing. He wanted the people of the world to know what He was doing. So Daniel was written to the secular world. And here is the theme of the book of Daniel. Now this is not, as you're looking at your notes, the answer or the theme of the day. Not quite the theme yet. We're getting close to it. Here's the basic idea of Daniel. God's kingdom is going to beat all of the other kingdoms. That's that's the basic theme of the book of Daniel. God's kingdom is going to beat all of the other kingdoms. And Daniel's charge was to bring that. Now, what is the theme of Daniel? As you look at your notes under introduction, that little bulleted item, the theme of Daniel, God will thwart, and write in the next words, all of His opponents. Daniel will thwart all of His opponents. Now, adults, I'll quiz you later too. Okay? That's the theme for the book of Daniel. Look with me at Daniel 7 and verse 14. This is a prophecy, we'll get to this I think on Thursday. It is a prophecy actually of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Some people look at this and think it refers to His second coming. It has nothing to do with His second coming. How did Jesus ascend up into heaven? He ascended up in a what? Yes, He went up in a cloud. Now this gives you the picture not of earth looking up, but of heaven looking down. I was watching Daniel 7.13 in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. A prophecy of the ascension of Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days which refers to the Father and they brought Him near before Him and then to Him, that is to Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. How many peoples, nations, and languages are meant to serve Christ? All of them. All of them. That's the basis for missions. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. God is going to thwart all of His opponents. Verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Incidentally, I'm using the New King James version of the Bible. Despite appearances, despite troublesome times, Despite the persecution of the saints, 
despite desolations, despite destructions of the holy people, God is going to beat all of His opponents. Now that is why we need the book of Daniel. Because all of us are guilty of making the world's power greater than the kingdom of Christ. And we think that because there is a powerful, prevailing secularism in our culture, we think that because anti-Christian governments seem to be ascending with an avowed goal of vanquishing the Christian church, we think that because the Christian church seems to have become so impotent, that therefore all is lost. And the book of Daniel is designed to help us keep our perspective. Another reason why I'm so anxious to teach the book, at least as much of it as we can, this week. So that all by way of introduction to the book of Daniel. Now, let's look at your text, Daniel chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7 deal with the theme of being carried into Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. It is 605 B.C. Children, what does B.C. mean? Before Christ. What does A.D. mean? Year of our Lord. Anno Domine. This is 506, 605 B.C. The land of Babylon is a powerful, vicious, voracious hungry empire. And in 605 B.C., the Babylonian government, moving from the east, met at a place called Carchemish, northern part of Egypt, and vanquished the powers of the Egyptian government. Egypt would never again be a world power after that. But because the Babylonian government was a hungry beast, it began to make its way into Judah. 605 B.C., the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the son of Nabopolassar, who started the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the empire of that day. In that year, there was the first invasion of Jerusalem. There were two other ones, one in 597, one in 587. This was the first one, 605. From man's perspective, Israel was done. From man's perspective, it was a matter of time before the Babylonians were on top of the heap. But now look at God's perspective in verse 2. And the Lord, Adonai, the all-powerful God, gave Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, southern kingdom, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of, literally, the God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. What's Shinar? 
So you know what Shinar is? Where's Shinar referred to? What book of the Bible is Shinar referred to? Other than here, Daniel, obviously. That would be too easy. Where's Shinar? I could ask Pastor Buchanan. He would know, but I don't want to give it away. Anybody know? Somebody want to give a guess? Where do you read about Shinar? Genesis what? Real early or real late? Early. Genesis chapter 10. Shinar was the Babylonian area. It was the place where Nimrod the conqueror built a great city. Shinar became the area that represented the city of man over against the city of God. And so Daniel, writing under the inspiration of God, says that these people and articles were taken from the house of the God, the temple in Jerusalem, into the land of Shinar to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. From God's perspective, the Lord was the one who let Jehoiakim lose and be brought under the domination of Babylon. And don't you ever forget that what seem to be the worst defeats for the people of God are always the things in which God is acting. Unless you want to believe there's some things God is not sovereign over. And that's not right. Man's perspective, Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. From God's perspective, I've judged you. Then the king, and that is Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz. Now Ashpenaz would be like the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. He was something like the chief of staff to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, and those were men who were devoted to the king's service, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Go back and make a special trip. This probably was about 597 B.C. Children, what does B.C. mean? Before Christ, right? A.D. is what? Anno Domine, which means year of our Lord. This is B.C. Go back and you get some of the Israelite children, some of the Israelite boys. Bring back some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Now this was the way in which the king, Nebuchadnezzar, showed he had the victory. He said, you go back and you get the merit scholars. You get the boys and girls with the best SAT scores. You get the best athletes in Israel. And you get the royal children, the king's sons. You bring them back. Because that showed that the power of Israel was being vanquished. Now let me let you in on a secret. The king's children in Israel didn't first represent the king of Israel. They were meant to represent the king of kings. So when Nebuchadnezzar had the king's children brought back to Babylon, that was saying to Israel, guess whose God is really stronger? That's why there's the play in the language of the God and Nebuchadnezzar's God. You go get some of those king's kids and bring them back. That was the second invasion of Babylon. Bring back young men, and that meant teenagers, at that time, when you were about 13 years old or so, that's when you went through formal training to serve your government. Kind of like early military service. Go back and get those young men of that age. That's why I said 
Age of Opportunity. Good book for dealing with teens. He knew this was an age of opportunity. Get these young men to come. In whom there's no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. And that really has the idea of, let's get those that we can best get to serve in my palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans being another name for Babylonians. This had been prophesied in Isaiah 39 and verses 5 through 7. If you want to look there for a moment. Isaiah 39 and 5 through 7. Children, was Isaiah a major prophet or a minor prophet? Major. Why is he a major prophet? You know why? Jonah's a minor prophet because there's four chapters. Isaiah's a major prophet because how many chapters in Isaiah? 66. Lots of them. All right, let's look at Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. This was written some 750 years before the birth of Christ, about 150 years before the event. In Isaiah 39, verse 5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, then the king, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day, writing 150 years before the fact, shall be carried to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You try to predict something that specific that's going to happen 150 years from now. You can't do it. But Isaiah could because he was writing as God's messenger giving God's own words. And so in fulfillment of prophecy, these pristine youth of Israel are brought to Babylon. And they are to be trained in all the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now remember that the Bible is very outdated. Remember that when you read the Bible, and we're dealing with things that are now 2,600 years past. We really have got to realize that this is a totally different world that these people lived in. I mean, what do we have to do with the language and literature of the Chaldeans? This is so different from us. For example, their language and literature dealt with things like astrology. I mean, that has nothing to do with the way we think today, Right? Their language and literature dealt with various ways you could do fortune-telling. Nothing at all like we have today. The language and literature of the Chaldeans dealt with magic and how you could do magic tricks showing your power over the creation. Absolutely nothing like what we have today. How you could conjure up evil spirits to work on your behalf. Absolutely nothing like what we have today. Well, that's exactly the thing that the king wanted these young boys to be trained in. What we would know of as evil, wicked worship of the creature more than the Creator. Exactly like what is often done in our culture today. And so the king appointed for them, we're in verse 5 now, still under, carried to Babylon. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank 
and three years of training for them. Boot camp. So that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Here's a two-pronged plan for dealing with these young boys. Number one, discipleship. We are going to make disciples of the king. He will eat at our table. He will have the king's delicacies. And we will teach him the things of magic and of fortune-telling and of astrology and how to interpret dreams and all of this. As they sit at the king's table being nurtured to be loyal servants of a pagan king. And I remind you that it was not just Daniel and his three friends who were here. There were many of these Israelite boys who were put in this position. Part one of the king's plan to produce his own Purdue chickens of Babylon is discipleship. Number two, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. Part two of their clever plan to make Babylonian disciples. Number one, you teach them. You make disciples by teaching. And number two, you change their names. Let them think differently about what they are. Change their names. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now, children, you got your, you got your orange sheets? You waited patiently? You got them? Mine's white. What's in a name? I want you to write down the names. We know pretty well what the Israelite names mean. Those are easy. We're not quite sure of the others, but I'll give you what some have suggested. Okay? You ready to write? Here we go. Adults, you can do it too. And children, remember, you're going to get a quiz tomorrow. Okay? Number one. Daniel means... God has judged. And when we get done these three, you're going to tell me what they all have in common. Number one, Daniel means God has judged. That means God has already made a decision about what's right. God sets the standard, not me. Number one, God has judged. Number two, and I spelled it wrong on here. It's Hananiah. Hananiah. Hananiah means Jehovah has been gracious. Hananiah. Jehovah has been gracious. Now keep thinking. What do these all have in common? Mishael. Mishael means who is what God is. Mishael, who is what God is. Mishael. Number four, Azariah, means Jehovah has helped. Azariah, Jehovah has helped. Now what do these all have in common? Listen again. Daniel, God is judged. Hananiah, Jehovah has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, Jehovah has helped. What do they all have in common? They all refer to something. What? They all refer to God. They all use the names for God in the Old Testament. Hail, Yahweh, Jehovah. 
So the children would think about what? When they mention their name. God. Our first two boys. First one, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, which means gift of God. Dr. Garrison, you'll appreciate this. We call it gift of God because it only cost us $15 for his birth. Pediatricians did it for free because we were so poor. The only reason I had to pay 15 bucks is because of the phone that was in the room. So it was a real gift of God. And we were so thankful for that. It was so wonderful. We called our second child Jonathan, which also means gift of God. But that one cost a little bit more. But they all to remind us of God, okay? And so they changed the name. Daniel now is going to be called Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means may Baal protect his life. Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, Baal, was a general name for a pagan god. May Baal protect his life. Baal to Shazer. May Baal protect his life. Baal was a pagan god. Shadrach means, as best as we can understand it, the command of Aku. The command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of the Sumerians, which preceded the Babylonians. They had many different gods for different things. So, Shadrach, the command of the Sumerian moon god Aku. Meshach. Mis- Meshach, what's that? Oh, Aku, A-K-U. Sounds like a Thai restaurant. <laughs> okay. Now, Meshach, Mishael means what? What does Mishael mean? Can you read in your sheet? Who? Who is what God is? Meshach is who is what Aku is. Who is what the moon god is. Okay, so Meshach, who is what Aku is. And my favorite one, you'll appreciate this if you're Star Wars people, Abednego, servant of Nabu. <laughs> servant of, I don't know in the Star Wars lingo where Nabu is, but I know he's in there someplace, or it is. Servant of Nabu. Nabu or Nebo was the god of vegetation. Now, what do all those names have in common? They remind you of what? Pagan gods, of false gods. And so they change the name so they think about another god. Because naming people represents lordship. Children, your parents gave you your name because they're your parents. They're your masters in the Lord. Names often represent your status and what you are, as they did with these boys. As John Calvin wrote... The design of the king was to lead those youths to adopt the customs of the Chaldeans that they might have nothing in common with the chosen people. They would teach them and even change their names so they would forget their heritage as covenant people. They wouldn't be reminded of the true God from their names. They would have been taught for three years at the king's table to think and speak and act exactly like the Babylonians who were the enemies of God's people. Now, you waited for Pinocchio. Let me tell you about Pinocchio. In Pinocchio, Pinocchio was at one point brought to Pleasure Island. I mean, remember Pleasure Island from Pinocchio. Remember Pleasure Island? Pleasure Island was a cool place. In Pleasure Island... There were streets paved with cookies. I think they were famous Amos cookies. 
What better way to pave your streets than famous Amos cookies? Pleasure Island was lined with donut trees. Krispy Kreme donut trees. You have Krispy Kreme out here, right? Ah, That's one of the good things that came out from the east, unless you're on a diet. Pleasure Island, a lemonade river, and a pink ice cream mountain. You would eat of all of the delicacies of Pleasure Island, where all the bad little boys went. But they had tremendous pleasures. Well, that's exactly like what Daniel and his friends were going to get at Babylon. This was the top kingdom of the world. They were to have the best meat, the best wine, the best food, the best everything. All they'd have to do is become just like the Babylonians. Why do I tell you about Pinocchio? Because when you were in Pleasure Island, what was the disease that you would get after a while? Anybody know? What was it called? Yes. Yeah, donkey fever. You know, you know what donkey fever is? You start enjoying all those pleasures and you begin to speak uh, after a while uh, with a donkey uh, You begin to speak with a donkey brain. And your ears began to look like donkey ears. And pretty soon you began to run and walk like a donkey until eventually you became a jackass. And that's exactly what was going to be done to these boys in Babylon. Now let me stop for a minute. Let me impress upon all of you that this is not just 2,600 years before the birth of Christ. This is exactly what the world will seek to do today. Look in your sheets again. Adults and children if you have them. This is exactly what the world will do today because in Scripture, Babylon represents the world. Babylon in the Old Testament, and as it's referred to in the book of Revelation, refers to the world system. Revelation chapter 18, Babylon the Great, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. As we are learning about Babylon and its system, think about the world that will try to push you into its mold. You say, yeah, well, how does the world really want to change my name? Well, let me give you some suggestions. We say the name of a Christian ought to be names like, it doesn't have to be your literal name, although Pastor Buchanan and his wife have done this. You have faith, you have joy, and charity, right? No? What's the other one? Oh, grace. So that's a good. Do no charity, no charity, and no hope in your home, right? <laughs> but you get the point. That's designed to represent gracious things. Now, whether you've got a name like that or not, we say there are certain ways that describe Christians: humble, wise, godly, meek, gracious, loving, joyful, kind. Those are the kinds of things that ought to mark us and be our names. The world says things like handsome, famous, powerful, looking out for number one, pulling your own strings, macho, right? And so the world will make you think differently than what God does, same as Babylon did. And in the same way, King Nebuchadnezzar knew that we needed to educate these Israelites so they'll follow us. 
the world knows that it needs to educate you so that you will follow it. Because the power to educate is the power to build or the power to destroy. And parents, grandparents, don't you ever forget it. The power to educate is the power to build your children or it's the power by which they'll be destroyed. Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar realized that. Okay, we've got five minutes. Let's go and see what happens. We'll get to the sequel and all of this. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. May I go another few minutes tonight? You got me started late tonight. May I go a few more minutes? Okay. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now there's all different views about why Daniel thought he would defile himself at the king's table. It's not because drinking wine is wrong, but Daniel did realize that when you eat at a table with a king, that's a sign of your loyalty to that loyalty to the king that was too much of a loyalty. The other could have been, the book of Proverbs says, you be careful when you sit down with a king to eat his dainty delicacies. And you put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. Daniel may have realized it was his weakness. We don't know exactly why, but he did not want to defile himself with the king's delicacies. Now God, verse 9, had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. This was a subordinate to the secretary of health, education, and welfare. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who were your age? And then you would endanger my head before the king. He said, Daniel, you know, I've got to look out for my own neck. If you don't eat at the king's table, he's going to think you're disloyal to him, and he's going to have my head because I didn't make you do it. That's the kind of reasoning that was here. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice that they used their names. We would say they're Christian names. Their names they were given as Israelites. Please, test your servants for ten days and let them give us pulse, is the word, to eat and water to drink. And some say it's vegetables. Some say it's beans. I don't know what pulse is, but I'll tell you what I think the nearest thing to pulse would be if we were in it. Tofu. That's what I think they was like. Because it could refer to beans. And I'll tell you, almost a fate worse than death would be to have to live on tofu. But that's what they said. Just give us tofu, pulse, and water to drink and see what happens. This is called a constructive alternative. Now, children, learn that constructive alternative. They said, wait a minute, Daniel, the king wants you to eat at his table. They want you to be nice, fat Purdue chickens serving him. You don't eat that stuff and you're going to be thin and scrawny and the king wants you to be the best. Daniel says, wait a minute, I have a constructive alternative. You give us tofu and you give us water for ten days. We won't defile ourselves with the king's delicacies. Just give us ten days and you see what happens. Daniel did not say, I ain't eating the king's food. Because it wasn't wrong to eat the king's food in itself. But Daniel didn't want to be brought under the lordship of Nebuchadnezzar. So he said, let me give an alternative. You do this and you see what happens. 
Test your servants for ten days and then let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Just ten days and see what happens. You're asked to work. And the man says, now in this work, you're going to have to work on Sunday. Constructive alternative would be to say, now you know, this work doesn't have to be on Sunday. You let me work my six days. Please let me have my Lord's Day free. And you see if I'm not a better worker in those six days. That's a constructive alternative. And that's the kind of thing Daniel did. So, he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And what's amazing is this. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. That's what tofu can do for you. They were better off than these other guys. And thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and he gave them tofu. <laughs> he gave them vegetables. He said, boy, if it works for you for this amount, then go ahead and take it. And so they actually won at that point. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all these things that they were to learn and wisdom. And Daniel was given understanding in all visions and dreams. You see, what the Lord did is He honored Daniel's faithfulness. Remember that we have a Savior who was also tempted. The devil said to Jesus, you see all these kingdoms of the world. They're yours. Just bow down to me. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you serve. Daniel, in so many words, said, I'm only going to serve the Lord God. And the Lord said, The king was going to train you in all of the astrology and magic arts. You honored me. I will teach you how you're to have discernment. And at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, now's the test. The chief eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, therefore they served before the king. These were at the head of the class. They all won the National Geographic Spelling Bee or National Geographic Geography Bee. They were the tops. But what's amazing is this. Notice, their names given as Israelites. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What does Daniel mean? God has judged. And He did judge. God said, I'm going to have Lordship over Nebuchadnezzar. I judge that these men are going to be better than all of the others because they've honored me. Hananiah, Jehovah has been gracious. Was Jehovah gracious to those boys? Yes or no? Of course He was. He was gracious to them and blessed them. Because I'm going to tell you, tofu isn't going to make you better than those other guys. But when the Lord blessed, they were better. Mishael, who is what God is? Could any other God have done that? Of course not. Azariah, Jehovah has what? Helped? Had the Lord helped? Sure. 
The Lord honored His own name. They lived up to their names. Jehovah made them live up to their names. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. And you're going to find that out tomorrow. At least adults will. The Lord's going to say, Now, Nebuchadnezzar, you watch and see how good they are. As the Lord says, Whoever honors me, I will honor. And that's exactly what happened. But here's what's great. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? Leader of what? No, not Assyria. Persia. What? Yeah, the Medes are going to come up later. What nation did Persia have to vanquish to become a world empire? Babylon, the same Babylon that had conquered the Israelites. Daniel continued in his exalted position until 539 B.C. What does B.C. mean, children? Before Christ? When Cyrus came and vanquished the Babylonian Empire. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that Daniel lived to see, this is in your booklet, the tables turned. The Lord showed that it wasn't Babylon as wicked and as awfully opposed to God as it was. God said to Daniel in particular, they're not going to win. Because the theme of this book is that God is going to best all of His enemies. Okay? So Daniel lived to see the tables turned. And again, one of the lessons you're going to learn to live this week. I hope if you learn nothing else when you get done this week, you will go away from this camp. And as wicked as our culture is, you're not going to go away with your head between your legs saying we've lost. Because we've no more lost than the Israelites did. Judgment, yes. But the Lord showed that He was in control. And He did it in a very particular way with faithful Daniel. Now let me give you these lessons as we break tonight. Some lessons for tonight. Number one. I want you to ask yourself some questions. And you may do this in your cabins, families, with your children. What's your name? I don't mean your name, that specific one given you, like Bill or Jonathan or whatever it would be. What is your name? The name that the Lord's given all of you who are baptized into the name of Christ is Christian. You're marked out with the name Christian. And ask yourself, what is my name? Baptized into His name. I mark you, I baptize you into the name of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that name is critically important. Second question you ask is, in whose court am I serving? Because we're in a realm, and you're serving one king or another. And whose court am I serving? Question number three, from whose, king, from whose table do I eat? Ah, the world's got wonderful delicacies. The world has all kinds of pleasant things to entice you to follow it. Are you eating from that table? Christ also has wonderful fruits that He gives you. Are you eating from that? Ask that question. And remember, parents, if you are not making disciples of Christ in your children, the world is going to make disciples of devils of them. If you're not making disciples of Christ, the world will make them disciples of the devil. So ask yourselves some questions. What's my name? At whose table am I eating? 
In whose court am I serving? Number two in your lesson for tonight. Commit yourself not to defile yourself. That's the main lesson in chapter 1. Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. I mentioned Sabbath as one. You're going out to get a job, you commit yourself in your heart, I'm not going to violate the Lord's day. Young people, as you begin dating, or courting, if that's what you're going to call it, you commit yourself, you're going to keep yourself pure. It all begins in the heart. You commit yourself when you go to school, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to steal answers from somebody else's test. And you commit yourself that you're not going to defile your body with the substances that can destroy you. Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. Commit yourself not to defile yourself. And the reason for that is this. This world is going to be judged just as Babylon was. That's why. That's why, children, you wonder, why do we have to be so strict about what following what God says in His Word? It's because God is going to be very strict about judging those things that are contrary to His Word. And Babylon is a lesson in that. Commit yourself that you will not defile yourself. And lesson for tonight, number three, stand in the victory of Christ. You see, Daniel is a shadow pointing us forward to Christ. And our Lord Jesus purposed in His heart that He would not defile Himself. In fact, He would not defile Himself so much that He was absolutely obedient even unto the death of the cross so that He could conquer our greatest enemy, not Babylon, but death itself, and be raised from the dead so that you might believe in Him and be part of His kingdom that will conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. So number one, ask yourself some questions. Number two, commit yourself not to defile yourself. Number three, stand in the victory of Christ who did not defile Himself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And number four, you better get yourselves a good night's sleep because we've got an awful lot to do tomorrow. Let's stand and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the book of Daniel. We thank You, our Lord, for this model that is given to us, a model of faith in which young men in a very scary situation, apparently without their mothers and fathers, mothers and fathers around them, resolved that they would live out of their names, they would live out of the name of God in which they'd been marked, and would not defile themselves with things otherwise lawful, but that would in that context make them be followers of a wicked king. Lord, we marvel that they could still serve in a political capacity under a pagan government, and yet they could do it in such a way that they were still holy. Lord, teach us that. Teach us what it is to be in the world, but not to be of the world. We ask that You will also bless our time of fellowship, bless this ice-breaking time as we get to know one another, and we pray also that You will give us that rest that will be needed for tomorrow and make our discussion of these things that we learn to be eminently profitable for our good and for the glory of Your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.